everyone and welcome to this brand spanking new season of 101 Jaw Street, the podcast from Mowbray, Scotland's National Centre for Children's Literature and Storytelling. My name is John Malloy and I ask you to join me as I delve into the worlds of creative learning, children's literature and storytelling. Kicking 2021 off with a bang is none other than author and editor Joan Haig. Joan was born in Zambia where, in her own words, she was weaned on avocados and stories. She has travelled and worked all over the world and now lives in the Scottish borders. Last year, her debut novel, Tiger Skin Rug, was published by Cronachan Publishing. At the height of the 2020 lockdown, Joan edited Stay At Home, a collection of stories from writers from around Scotland, all focusing on young people living through the lockdown. This year, Joan will soon publish her new book, Talking Histories, 150 Years of Speeches. Joan, welcome to the show. Joan, what's your favourite children's story and why? Right, well, I find favourite questions very difficult um, because every time I say what my favourite of something is, I think of 10 things or more sometimes that I could have... I answers I could have given and um, I always end up feeling bad that I didn't choose one of the other ones and then I get in a pickle because I I can't decide um, what my favourite is and from childhood I think this is a lovely question because it's forced me to think of all the lovely stories that I heard when I was a child and the books that um, I was lucky enough to have read to me and I read. Um, I think one of the things that stands out most is just the family stories so stories that were passed on from my grandparents or my aunts and uncles or my parents about ordinary people in our our family and the extraordinary things that they did or the ordinary things that extraordinary family members did. Um, They really sparked a lot of imagination and I think there's nothing quite like sitting around in a family group and laughing at something that someone's done decades before and it's just... Um, I think for a child, that's that's a lovely connection to have with generations before. My family, because I was born and grew up in Zambia, a lot of my extended family were based in Scotland. Um, and my aunts used to send um, my sister and I storytellers. Um, they started off actually sending comic books that were came wrapped up in brown paper. And it was this tube you would get in the post um and it was kind of girls comics so mandy and bunty stories um and one called twinkle i think and then we got these storytellers which came with a cassette tape and they were just magic that was my first introduction to peter pan and it i think that story was it was like an installment the peter pan story but there were rather just amazing stories as part of that um magazine that the one that sticks out the most and that I would say if I had, I don't even know what the name of the story is, but if I could choose one story that's maybe not my favorite, but that really, that really had an effect on me. It was this story where somebody ended up having a slice of rainbow and eating a slice of the rainbow. And my mouth still waters when I think of that. <laughs> just all what that would taste like. It's just amazing. Um, so yeah, I was very lucky to have lots of different kinds of stories around. My mum had some quite avant-garde 
French books from the 60s that we, um, by Denise and Alan Trade, I think their names, The Butterfly Chase and Goodnight Veronica, quite surreal books. Um, but yeah, I was very lucky to have quite a range, um, but no one favourite. That's fantastic, actually, because you're the first person that who I've spoken to that rather than give you know their favourite book, has actually said, you know what, it's the stories and the oral, oral traditions that I've, I've experienced when I was growing up in my, my household. They're my favourite stories. And you've jolted my memory because I remember reading a magazine called Storyteller when I was young. And it came, it came with audio cassettes. And they had wonderful actors, voice actors like Richard Briers and people um, yeah. reading short stories. And I always remember one story that I'm pretty certain I've actually listened to the, the Rainbow story. But one story <laughs> that really stood out was Gobelino the Cat. Yes, yes. <laughs> Witch's Cat. Yes, yes. I think it's the exact yeah. same. I spent ages, years trying to find, because obviously all the cassettes were destroyed back in the, um, uh, back in the 80s, actually. Yeah. I'm so old, Joan. And um, <laughs> I found them on YouTube. I'm so chuffed that you've experienced Wow. Those <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. I did have a, a little um, bonding moment with um, Alan McClure because he'd also had an experience when he was younger listening to storytellers. And yeah, I, I wonder that the, there must be lots of us out there. <laughs> I think so. I think so. According to the YouTube um page where all the stories were actually uploaded so many comments was like oh my god this is the soundtrack of my childhood back in the 80s yeah um, amazing I, I think we're all out there i think there's a there's a community there what's right. lovely is my um my two boys um and my nephews actually when when they go to visit my parents my parents kept hold of the cassettes mm. <laughs> um so my own children have of been able to listen to the storyteller cassettes um when they go and visit their grandparents which is really lovely your debut novel tiger skin rug what's it about so the story is about two little boys lal and dilip patel who mm. come over from india to scotland with their family and so that's their parents and their grandmother and they come to from quite a modern india um to quite an old cold stone house in scotland and they although they arrive in summertime it's very gray and drizzly and the boys are very homesick the house that they've that their parents have bought is um quite a grand house that has um furniture in it and old things ornaments and things in it and one of the things that is in the house is, is an old tiger skin rug and this is it's quite a, a haunted feeling that particularly the older boy Lal um, gets from the rug. Mm. Um, the younger brother Dilip um, starts to confide in the rug and tell the rug his worries and cuddle up to it and, and tell it his, his secrets and there's something magical about Dilip's whispering to the rug and when he whispers to the tiger skin rug it starts to come to life and it tells the boys that it has a promise um, that it hadn't kept in life and it can't rest until it keeps this promise and if they help it to keep the promise then in exchange the tiger will take them home so they go off on this journey with this magical tiger the the two main protagonists come from an exotic faraway land and then move relocate to scotland 
you come from an exotic faraway lands and you relocated to Scotland. Was there an element of bringing in some of your experiences on some degree to um, inform your writing in the book? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, growing up as I did in the tropics um, mm. and then coming, um, I came over to Scotland when I was a teenager and was quite miserable actually. <laughs> the difference not just in climate but in culture and it's quite a shock um and it it took me a long time to to settle here and I think I wanted to tell that story without it being about me um Mm. but it's also just what I knew to to write about I suppose um also my my work, so I, I work as an academic um, in, and most of my research has been into ideas of home and belonging and place and mm. heritage. So I think bringing, I brought a lot of those themes about migration with me. Um, and the, the studies that I've done have never been about, particularly about um, impoverished families or families that have come from a crisis zone. They've mm. always been stories of um, a range of society um, and different minority groups so I didn't want to just write about um, a a kind of well I suppose there are refugee stories out there and I think they're hugely important and there needs to be a lot more of them but I was fairly traumatized by my own journey Mm. (laughs) um, as a child and you know from moving from place to place and I think you don't it doesn't have to be from a a difficult kind of political circumstance that a child moving from one place to another can Mm. feel a a sense of trauma. And so I wanted to make the character um, just a kind of ordinary kid from an ordinary modern middle-class family moving from one place to another. Um, And yeah, I think my own experience really, really helped shape that. In fact, my husband, the first draft that I wrote, he was in stitches on the floor and it takes quite a lot to get Lawrence to be, you know, in tears with, with laughter, but he just thought it was absolutely hilarious. The number of references to drizzle and rain <laughs> that I had, because that was obviously my overwhelming impression from childhood of Scotland was just this gray drizzly rain. And I just put it all into the first version of the book. And, um, yeah, I, I had to edit quite, there's quite a lot of rain in it still, but I had to edit quite a lot of a lot of that out. But it's good that you're writing what you know, and there is a lot of rain in Scotland, um, <laughs> yeah. which is great, and that's one of the reasons why we love it so much. Um, the book also has a quite a strong central message about preserving nature in the natural world, which I, I thought was brilliant. It certainly comes through when you read the book. How important was that message for you to to communicate to the uh, to the reader yes so i i actually didn't set out to to have a theme of conservation at all i suppose my my feeling about the rug when um so i should maybe give a little bit of background my my aunt lillian had given me the idea of the rug she had she had always been intended to write a story for her nephews and nieces and it was called Tiger Skin Rug, the story that she had in mind. Um, and I think it was a wildly different story to the one that I've written. But it, the essential kernel, if you like, of the the, um, the story was there, was that there was a tiger 
there was some kind of mystery or promise. Mm. Um, it involved India somehow. <laughs> We're not really sure. She never wrote it down. And when latterly I tried to, to ask her more about it, she um, had developed dementia and mm. didn't really remember it much at all. Um, so she did write something I sat down with her and we talked about it and she wrote down some ideas just over and over and they weren't really about a tiger they weren't about India and they 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 just didn't reflect what I think the story she'd had in mind was going to be mm -hmm. but she passed this idea on that was just too good to be lost and so when I came to start writing my own story I took that um, idea and I think because of I'd always thought of the tiger being, because it was my Auntie Lillian's story, it was somehow, it was an older story. So her ideas had been about just wartime and, you know, the, the rug seemed very old. So when I got the idea and started writing, the, the rug, the tiger skin rug was something to do with, you know, colonial hunting or, you know, it was, it was an old rug. Um, but actually for my characters, I wanted to write a contemporary story mm. and I wanted the promise that the tiger had to keep. I wanted that to be relevant to the characters that were alive in the, in the story. So the rug couldn't actually be centuries old, you know, it, it had to have been shot more recently. Mm. Um, so, and alive more recently. So, um, so the story became one more about a poached tiger um, than a hunted tiger, which was the original idea, I think. And of course, I just think it's impossible to write about a tiger in contemporary times without talking about conservation and without, you know, the issue now is not historical and it's not about hunting. It is about habitat destruction and it's about poaching and mm. it's about the, the you know, it's not about the trophy of the tiger. It's about how we use tiger parts and how where they enter the market. And it's... It's almost it's almost much darker actually um, as an issue to confront, and I don't think um, I didn't really want it to overpower or weigh down the story. So I tried not to be didactic about it and you know give a lesson on conservation or anything. So it is I think a little bit of a background throughout. If if I am kind of didactic in the in the book, it's probably more to do with the theme of home and belonging than it is about conservation but you know I just think it's just so important I was also wrote the books um, at the beginning I wrote the book for my two boys and my nephews um, and their children who just care immensely about the environment you know and I think that generation really does it's it's on the forefront um, which is fantastic um, but given that they were my audience I think I it's a bit of a crowd pleaser for them as well. <laughs> Brilliant. And I have to say this idea of your, um, you getting inspiration from the previous gen generations of your family ties in with what you said about the stories being passed down to you um, through the generations, but you're also getting inspiration for these new stories as well from your family. That's fantastic. It is. It's very special. I think that um, it, my auntie Lillian was just such a supreme storyteller. She really was so talented at, at you know, oral storytelling. And we had ghost stories, we had shaggy dog stories from her, we had all sorts of tales from the war. And um, it was so um, 
I don't know, just exciting to think that she had a story that she was going to write down that she, you know, thought of, she dreamt it up um, um, quite, you know, um, early on in the 50s or 60s, I think she'd had this idea for this story and, and was always going to write it. And it was just, yeah, I'm not sure that mine is a patch on what hers would have been, but it's just, it, the idea was just so magical. I just couldn't really let it go. Now, John, I know that you live in the Scottish borders, um, but originally, as you said, you grew up in Zambia. Do you think those experiences growing up in Africa has shaped you in your writing? Yes, I do. Um, there's two ways, I suppose, well, multiple ways of answering it. I suppose there's how I write, but also why and what I write. Um, and I think that idea of what I write being about my experience of of moving from a tropical country to a colder northern climate. Um, but knowing that, um, having lived that experience, I think having, it's just, it's not just about the culture, it's very much about the landscape and the connections. And I think um, have it, having moved through that myself, I'm, it's definitely shaped my choices in what I write because I write very much about place and landscape and identity and home and I'm actually I'm working on a, a different book at the moment and I'm forcibly trying to get away from those things <laughs> I, I just seem so drawn to 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 that um and it's not because I want again to tell my story particularly it's just that I feel there are so many children out there who will have similar um experiences and I'd just like to help them work through it um, and I think that's quite important to me. I, I was helped by books so often as a child and if I could pass that on I think that would be really wonderful. Um, but there's also the how how I write and I, I would love to think that some of the, the rhythm or the place references and the kind of variety of vocabulary that I've got from my experiences in Africa have really helped how I write. There's also going back to the idea about the, the conservation and how much I wrote it into the story. I think a lot of African folk tales um, that I grew up with were stories first and moral tales second so the, the, it was sometimes less clear so it's not not as obvious in a way as Grimm's fairy tales and and a lot of the European stories that the moral is sometimes quite deeply hidden in African tales and folklore at least in Zambia um, so so there's a story and then and then there's this moral behind it and it takes some puzzling out sometimes it's more like a riddle in many ways so sometimes you end the story and you're not sure what you're supposed to take away from it um and I really enjoyed that actually growing up that you kind of were left thinking huh not not sure what that was what lesson I'm to take or lessons I'm to take away from that um so I like that kind of slightly complicated um infusion of morality um into a story where the story and the adventure is the thing that comes first. In Africa, I suppose there's also a lot of stories involving animals. And I, that's quite clear in my writing, I think, putting, putting so much into the animal um, 
the importance of the animal in the story and that the book that I'm writing next also features an animal and a bit of magic so I think that's and that space between reality and unreality is is very strong in in African folklore so I think it's yeah it's definitely affected. Kids like ambiguity and they like what I've noticed this with with young particularly young kids they like being able to work it out for themselves and if you try to spoon feed what the model of the story is to them they they switch off or at least they listen to the the model and they go oh okay but because they haven't had to work for it they haven't had to just thought through okay what what does this mean it doesn't quite have the same effect sometimes whereas if you leave it open Roald Dahl used to do this quite a lot actually in his stories he he the 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 heroes were always a little bit ambiguous and the villains were always a little bit ambiguous and the, it allowed the young person the young reader I say young any any age reader to work out what the moral is because once you've worked for it and you've got it it's yours yeah Roald Dahl is quite a good example of that actually some and some of the darker themes of the story that just don't confuse a child necessarily but just make them you know just complicate the the kind of um dual good versus bad um Mm. yeah there's a lot of that in african storytelling i think kind of layered i was also interested when you said about this idea of being an individual between two states between two different locations and identity being really important i used to teach in an international school and um, the kids that I taught, all of them were multinational. Never mind, they, they had one. Like, some of them were dual nationality, but in their heads, because they travelled so much, and some of them had lived in six countries by the time I uh, teach them, their perception of the world and their outlook is completely different. They have a much more internationalist uh, worldview, but at the same time, they often sometimes would struggle about where they fit in that world. And I think that is an important thing that doesn't really doesn't really get examined that much in writing mm. is this idea of, again, it's ambiguity, but it's an ambiguity of identity of trying to work out where do you belong? Yeah, I think that's that's something that I think a lot about because I'm so often misplaced um, and my, my accent doesn't reflect. You know, my mum my has a very strong Glaswegian accent. My dad has a, a Fife accent. Um, and I was born and grew up in Zambia and then we moved to the South Pacific and then from there came to Scotland. My parents um, now live um, now live in Spain. So in terms of where other people perceive I'm from, I'm, I'm off, it's often um, doesn't match onto where I think I'm from. Um, in Scotland, a lot of people assume I'm from England. I go to England, people have no idea where I'm from. <laughs> um, and you know, I went back to Zambia um, for, 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 um, to do research for my doctoral thesis. I went back for quite a considerable amount of time um, and my family and friends there didn't really feel that I belonged there, um, even though my sense of belonging was very strong there. Um, I, you know, I'd left and um, so there's a lot of questions about authenticity and where, yeah, this... This, we like to know where people are from. We like to place them and we like to put people in boxes and understand we understand them that way. And I do have a really strong resistance, I think, to labelling people. Oh. But part of that comes, I suppose, from me not really being completely comfortable with the labels that I've been given or that I've given myself over, different, you know, and I think labels can change as well. And I think, yeah, there are a lot of stories of children who've 
had you know these mul multicultural experiences um kind of third culture kids or expatriates that um you know from all different countries going to all different countries who who have amazing stories to tell Joan I know you are passionate about small and independent publishing in Scotland why does it mean so much to you I am very passionate about this and I hope I can articulate my thoughts um, on it because when I first thought about having my story turned into a book and published, um, I knew nothing about the children's publishing industry, the, the kind of background workings of it. Um, and when I sent my manuscript off, the first place I sent it to was to a small independent publisher. Um, I chose them because they seemed friendly. I liked some of the books that I'd come across that they were publishing. Um, I'm with Cranachan Publishing. Um, I'm not a hugely confident person and it felt less intimidating to go to them than to try the agent route and the big publisher route. Um, but I, re I really have since learned what a challenge it is for the small um, independent publishers. Um, and several people with all the, I think, the, the kindness and best will in the world have said to me, um, oh, your story is great. You know, did you never think of going with an agent or going with a, a bigger publisher? Um, and I had, I tried um, four or five agents at quite, quite an embarrassingly early draft stage. I cringe when I think about what I sent them. But they, several people have now said, oh, you know, you, you could have... Um, you could have sent this started at the top and, you know, and worked your way down to, <laughs> to an independent. And I just, I'm quite passionate about changing that perception because I don't think of it in terms of a hierarchy at all. Um, I don't, I, I'm a full supporter of, you know, big publishers and th there's quite a few conglomerates out there and they're doing amazing things. Um, but for me, it's not a hierarchy. Um, I'm not against them, but I am particularly for the small publishers because I think up, being up against these bigger publishers, they just face so, so many more challenges. Um, and one of them is this perception that they're somehow at, there's a hierarchy and they're not at the top of it. Um, and they're, they're doing amazing stuff. They're producing so many great stories and books and high quality um, stories and I just I feel this there needs to be more equity we, we've seen this year um, a few of the smaller publishers um, getting books in, onto the big lists and being really widespread in children's books um, and I think that is absolutely amazing but we have to remember that their success this year has come because they had those particular publishing houses had an injection of funding and there has to be that injection of funding into the smaller publishers in order for them to compete at the same, on, the, on a level playing field. So it's, for me, it's a lot about the equity of, of the industry. Um, and I care about that. I, I'm kind of the person who always goes for the underdog anyway. But um, I, I just, I think it's, um, yeah, it's, it's an issue of, of equal opportunity, I think. And recognizing that what small publishers bring to the table is so important it's for me and particularly with 
with what I've seen um, the Scottish publishers do. It's a lot about diversity and that, you know, the capacity of the big publishers to engage with diverse voices is huge. But actually a lot of the small publishers are already doing that in really significant ways. And it's about, for them, it's about the local diversities that they're representing. So, um, you know, Scots language, for example, um, and it's, it's things sometimes that the big London-based international publishers might not be, they might not see any market potential in it. So, so they're not going to select those stories, but actually Scots language stories, um, stories about the socioeconomic differences in Scotland or a refugee story set in Scotland, um, the Titanic from a child's, you know, a Scottish child's perspective. Um, they're just amazing diversities that we can, that small publishers in Scotland can represent and they do represent and they just give a voice to this wide range of um, voices that would other be otherwise be under or unrepresented, I think. And I think that's a huge thing to celebrate about small publishers. And again, it's not because I'm against the bigger publishers. Um, I've got my, my, one of my next book is with Templar Bonnier, which is a, a big company. Um, and I'm absolutely delighted with that. But I do think that the smaller publishers should be celebrated and also perceived differently. Um, I completely agree. And I suppose uh, one of the benefits um, of having small publishers in Scotland and, and, and the UK as a whole is that they can be a lot more reactive to what's currently happening at the moment. And they can instigate works of collaboration amongst writers that, that address a particular issue. And I'm leading on here to a project that I know that you that's very close to your heart. You edited a book called Stay at Home at the height of the 2020 lockdown. It was a, it's a wonderful collection of stories that deal with the issues of, of being a young person and lockdown. Maisie Chan, I believe, who's our resident um, writer in residence, contributed to it, which was brilliant. Could you tell me a little bit about that project and why you decided it was important to act then? Yeah, so it came out in May and it was, you're absolutely right, it was Kranikin's ability to be dynamic and just take it on and you know really turn it around we we did it in four weeks mm. um and that was really credit to to and lenny at Kranich and just seizing the idea reworking it with her you know sprinkling it with her magic and um and then us very quickly moving um to to pull it all together um I think for me at the time, it was very much to do with how lucky I felt I was and in particular how lucky I felt my children were. We didn't have a big house, um, but we had quite a large outdoor space. So we live um, on the edge of a hill. So my children had access to the hill and to a patch of woodland. And although that being inside was... Um, had its frustrations they could just go outside whenever they wanted and I just felt that that was so lucky um I was also in the position where I could um do some homeschooling work with them so I just felt that not all children were that lucky um and I just felt this huge compulsion I suppose to do something about it 
the children were just absolutely brilliant. You know, they were going out every Thursday and clapping for carers. Mm. They were making rainbows to stick on windows. They weren't seeing their friends. Um, they weren't washing their hands like crazy. They, you know, they were doing all these amazing things and, you know, coping or not coping, they didn't have a choice. They were just told to do something by the adult world and they were just doing it. And um, I just thought we needed something to, to say thank you to them and to help them work through it. Um, and because it coincided, I think one of the things that Cranachan wanted to do was get it out really quickly, knowing that it would maximise the number of ch children that it could reach because we still had that summer term where teachers would be leading um, the children um, over various online platforms. But because it was an ebook, and it was free, we could distribute it really widely. Um, and I, I understand that it has gone really widely. Um, um, we've had lots of positive messages from all across the UK um, about it, um, saying that it's, you know, it's really helped and it continues, I think, to be relevant because the pandemic hasn't gone away and also children will, are able to use it to reflect on and laugh at some of the experiences that were, were going on. Maisie Chan was really helpful, not only in contributing a piece to the book, but I, being a debut novelist, didn't I wasn't part of any um, bigger group at the time. Um, so I didn't really know, I didn't have a network of people that I could draw on immediately to help and to help contribute. So I started with um, the live literature database um, from Scottish Book Trust and I just put in the filters for the age range that, um, and I just um, invited everyone who came up on that. I asked Maisie Chan knowing that she was involved with the Scottish BAME writers group um, if we could if she could help me which she did um, and so we, as I think it's you know I, I went through various other routes as well and found we, we've got um, Rama Mundair who's up in Shetland Islands and um, just we, we also have what Maisie brought as well that which was so wonderful was from that group it's that the book is very well established writers in Scotland right down to new writers who this is their first publication is is something is a contribution in the stay-at-home anthology um, and several of those those names came through through the Scottish BAME group who um, and I think that's wonderful because it's it's a variety of not just of kinds of stories so there's poems there's there's little scripts there's diary entries there's short stories so there's a real variety in the anthology of that but there's also a variety of levels of you know who people I think you know most people hadn't heard of me <laughs> Um, so I felt really comfortable bringing together a group where it was a big, it didn't matter what stage you were at in your writing career, you know, it was just about doing something then and there and quickly um, for, for the children. Absolutely. And I think the fact that you, you were able to bring together a diverse group of writers can ultimately help because the readership is such a diverse readership and it, um, young people did suffer and young people did have to go through a lot of changes in a very short period of time during the lockdown and not everyone lives in the countryside 
I remember my nieces and nephews, they're based in Liverpool and they, literally they were kind of, that's it now, you're not going out. And people are living in, in, the, in the central belt and the big cities, that kind of thing. They were experiencing lockdown differently to the young people who were living in the more uh, rural regions. So uh, diversity in the writing was really important. The fact that you were able to bring that together um, was brilliant. Oh, thank you. What can we expect from you in the future? So this year I have a non-fiction children's book coming out. It's co-authored with Joan Lennon, which is really exciting for me. She was um, my writing mentor when I first plucked up the courage to do something about writing a book. I um, I went to Moniac Moore Creative Writing Centre up in the Highlands um, and Joan Lennon and Melvin Burgess were the, the tutors and I kept in touch with them and... Um, Joan and I are now writing a nonfiction together and it's called Talking History, mm. 150 years of speeches. Um, and I'm very excited about it. It's a book that I was looking for for my own children and couldn't find. So decided that I should do something about it. <laughs> mm. um, I also have, I'm writing two books on and off um, for, um, hopefully for Cranachan. One of the things about being with a smaller independent publisher is that they don't have such a large catalogue of books, so they don't bring out as many books in a year. Um, so sometimes if you're an author on their books, you might have to wait a little longer. Now, that's not always the case at all, and it's not always been the case with Cranachan, but um, I think given that I would quite like to have my next book out with Cranachan, um, it might be a little bit longer that I that you know that I have to wait until it comes out. Um, but again, that's back to my values of kind of small is beautiful, slow living. I I'm I'm not in a race to to get my next um, book out. I know uh, I know I probably should be. Um, I do have this lovely um, nonfiction coming out, and I am working on lots of other things. Um, I've got some ideas that I would love to pitch for for younger children as well um but the novels that i'm writing um i yeah i'd, I'd love them to come out with with um with Kranikin books and they they are again i think i mentioned earlier they're about they have a theme of animals and magic as well but set in completely different places I can't wait. Um, with you being based in um, over in the borders, um, when the world returns to normal, fingers crossed, uh, I'd love to get you over to Mowbray. Oh, that would be fantastic. Dreams come true. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Joan, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been brilliant. Really, really entertaining. Thank you. Thanks for having me.